Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Jesse Holtzman. I'm an internal medicine resident at the University of California, San Francisco, and a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow in House Thomas. Welcome back to another Cardio Nerds case report from the University of Maryland about a young woman in her early 30s presenting with angina just about six weeks postpartum who later suffers a cardiac arrest. Thankfully, the University of Maryland Cardio Nerds, including their ambassador, Dr. Manu Mysore, are on the case and our patient has a marvelous recovery. We're honored to call the University of Maryland a Cardio Nerds Healy Honor Roll Program, a program that supports our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. If your program isn't on the Honor Roll, get in touch. We'd love to learn from you. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Now, let's dive into this fascinating case. Challenge yourself and see if you can figure out the diagnosis as the case unfolds. For more, check out the Jack Case Reports article on this very same case. Be sure to claim your free CME credit using the link below. Today, we are so privileged to be joined by friends and colleagues from the University of Maryland Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us Drs. Karan Desai, Manu Mysore, Scott Butler, and Adam Zviman. And before I ask everyone to introduce themselves, I just have to especially thank Karan Desai. Karan has been a friend who we've known through residency, but also he joined the group for the Cardiners Case Report series because of his love and passion for both education, as well as to learn a little bit about podcasting because his wife, Nina, is starting a NICU podcast. So we're really excited to listen to those episodes and plug them because my wife is also a NICU fellow. Karan, we're so glad you joined because we just had no idea what you would bring to us. You've been such an incredible mentor to the whole production team. You've elevated their teachings and takeaways with all of your knowledge, but you know, you've just taken us such a step beyond with these incredible graphics. You've got a knack for education. You're like a professional graphic designer in addition to a cardiology fellow. And we're just so excited to have you be a part of the team. And we, we hope that's going to be a lasting relationship. Dan and Amit, that was a very, very kind welcome and thank you. And I much appreciate you guys including me in this project. You know, I've known Dan and Amit since I started residency. Dan was actually one of my first senior residents in the ICU, probably one of the reasons why I'm doing cardiology. But I'm really excited to introduce my co-fellows who have really been the ones that I've learned the most from over the past few years, and they're going to share a case here. But first of all, I just want everyone to get a chance to meet them. So Manu, you want to introduce yourself first? That sounds great. My name is Manu Mysore. I'm a second year fellow here at the University of Maryland, originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. My name is Adam Zweiman. I'm one of the second year fellows as well with Manu and Scott and Karin and interested in going into critical care cardiology after this. And finally, we have our angel, Scott. (laughs) I'm Scott Butler. Uh, I'm one of the second year fellows as well. I grew up in Baltimore County and then after going away for a while, just came back and back living in the city I love in Baltimore City. Wait, is there a backstory to Angel? Oh, oh, yes, there is. How did that nickname (laughs) (laughs) You'll never never meet a nicer guy than Dr. Scott (laughs) Butler. Uh, We have name tags for each fellow that one of our other co-fellows not on, on this podcast made for us and a uh, beautiful angel in the figure of Scott Butler. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about Scott Butler. So it's Dr. Scott Butler in the middle of the night while holding pressure for a patient that had a balloon pump removed will take consults with his other hand graciously and kindly. He is the angel of the University of Maryland. <laughs> Well, can we add powerful to that? Because it takes me both hands to hold groin pressure after a balloon pump is removed. Definitely admire that. But wait, Manu, Karan, and Adam, do you guys have nicknames too? I personally don't have as good of a nickname as we have given Scott. Um, I'm a Duke Duke Blue Devil, so they literally drew an entire Duke Blue Devil on our name tag. So that was what my nickname was, really. Yeah, they they generally just refer to Adam and I as in between grumpy and happy. I hope I never get to see the grumpy current because I've only seen the, the happy and, and <laughs> uh, creative current. <laughs> so, current, Manu, Scott, 
Adam, welcome to the show. This is a real treat, and I'll echo everything that Amit says about you, Karin. You are just a phenomenal medical educator, and we have been watching you really work with our residents and just elevate this series to a level that we could never have possibly imagined. And I knew you had it in you from the first time we worked together back in your intern year when I was a resident. And I'm just so, I've been admiring your career and just watching with so much joy. And the words that you said about me inspiring you for cardiology, I'm sure is not true, but I definitely still will take that as uh, the highlight of my year hearing that. And then this is a very special episode for me. I just have so much appreciation for the University of Maryland School of Medicine. This is my alma mater for med school. They took a chance on me letting me in and it was such an incredible ride and I got such a great education and I just have so much appreciation. I particularly want to mention Dr. Mickey Foxwell was one of my closest mentors who was the Dean of Admissions who unfortunately passed away, I would say quite early. And I, I just have so much appreciation for him opening the doors to medicine for me. I could not have been anywhere where I am without his incredible generosity. <laughs> so I just, so shout out to him and I'll pour a drink out. I'm sure he would appreciate that. But Maryland also offered me incredible teaching opportunities. And they used to have these programs where you could teach the class below you. And I would take up those opportunities. It was my first introduction to medical education. It really got the passion for med ed in me. And one of those students that I got to hang out with was Adams Vyman. And we just had such a blast. I remember the first lecture I made was actually hemodynamics. It was a heart failure in hemodynamics and it just really inspired me. It was career affirming, med ed affirming, and also cardiology affirming. And I just have so much appreciation. So this is a real treat. And this is like the first place where I actually know Baltimore. But if you guys could just take us to your favorite chill spot, I want to see Baltimore through your eyes. Back before COVID times, we were enjoying a drink out of the Orioles stadium around 10 a.m. would be a, not a bad option depending on when the game start. I love it. We're watching an Orioles game. We've got beer and soda and drinks and food. Let's talk about a great case. So I got a great case that I took care of uh, along with some of my excellent residents here at the University of Maryland a few months ago. Brought back some great memories. Love to hear it. This is great. So we had a 30-year-old female. Uh, she was about four to six weeks postpartum right after having her third child. It was just usually going through her usual postpartum visits. As part of her daily routine, she started to experience substernal chest discomfort. And it got to the point that it was worse with exertion, even happened at night, and definitely even bothered her enough that when she was going down the stairs one of the following mornings, she looked very labored. And her husband was extremely worried about her and brought her to the emergency room for further workup. At the time when she was admitted to the ER, uh, she started to note this sharp and substernal chest discomfort that radiated down her left arm. And at the time, the outside hospital decided to work this up very seriously, um, given her complaints and did some basic laboratory workup, as well as eventually a nuclear stress test. One of the more prominent findings happened to be a mildly elevated troponin as to 0.07, and a nuclear exercise stress test was performed, which showed no necessary perfusion defects. However, there were significant ST depressions in the inferior lateral leads with active chest discomfort during the test. And at the time, the decision was made to pursue coronary angiography prior to eventual transfer to our tertiary medical center here at the University of Maryland. Yeah. Had she ever had chest pain before, Manu? So prior to these episodic complaints that she had, it didn't really seem to be having that much significant chest pain. So this was definitely something out of the new for her. Yeah, and this is a situation where there's a disconnect between the EKG stress and the associated imaging modality. And there were there was a time where we predominantly did EKG stress tests, but we know that the accuracy is improved when we add imaging, be it a nuclear or echocardiography or MRI. And in this setting, they used a nuclear stress test. And it'd be interesting to know, was this a SPECT or was it a PET? Because in women in particular, you can get breast attenuation. And without attenuation correction, you may see breast attenuation and think, okay, maybe this was uh, just an attenuation artifact and read it as a false negative, whereas maybe there was actually true ischemia associated with her symptoms in her EKG. And I just wonder, with her being postpartum, I'm not sure if she's breastfeeding, if the lactating breast has any impact on the accuracy of SPECT imaging. I don't know the answer, but it's just interesting to note that there is a disconnect and I'm glad that there's the impulse is not to write off her symptoms. The impulse is to evaluate this further because clearly there's a warning flag symptoms with, it sounds like, profound EKG changes. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think if I recall correctly, it was SPECT imaging. Perfect. 
Just a short reflection and just say, I'm just so glad that obviously people are taking this very seriously. And and I'm glad the ball has, wasn't dropped disregarding this kind of pain. And somebody who's so young, 30-year-old woman, there's a lot of awareness around, again, women's health and women's cardiovascular health. And we certainly are really trying to emphasize that. But there, I'm sure there was a time where this may have been disregarded as emotional or related to the pregnancy. But as we all know, that being in the postpartum period actually puts women at risk for certain conditions like for example, uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection and postpartum cardiomyopathy and things like that. So I'm really glad that we are chomping at the bit, trying to sort out what's going on for this particular patient. So with all that in mind, um, one of the biggest things we wanted to look into was kind of what our past medical history was. Um, it was concerning very much for, for Hashimoto's thyroiditis in the past. However, she had no real issues with prior pregnancies. Um, she did unfortunately have one miscarriage at seven weeks or so. But for the most part, she was otherwise a fairly active non-smoker, no alcohol use, really only concerning for prior early MI history on her father's side. So prior to her coming over to the University of Maryland, she was otherwise afebrile, regular rate, normotensive, breathing really well on room air. Her vital signs were really not necessarily noteworthy. She was otherwise in a fairly stable condition. What was notable, however, was a diastolic decrescendo murmur most notable at the left upper sternal border that was very short in duration. This definitely raises some red flags, right? Because we think about flow murmurs. We talked about the hemodynamic effects of pregnancy in earlier episodes, increased cardiac output during pregnancy itself and the rising cardiac output in the peripartum and postpartum period. Cardiac output will definitely have fallen to normal ranges by this time period. But a diastolic murmur is always pathologic. Yeah, that's a great point. That's something that we were very curious about when we first met her. Some of the laboratory workup was, for the most part, fairly benign. Nothing really too much to say about, aside from that initial mildly elevated troponin at 0.07 and a very mildly elevated NT-prone B, about 400 or so. She got her underwent her left heart catheterization, as well as coronary angiogram at the outside hospital, and there were some definite striking findings that were unexpected from our standpoint altogether. This is a really interesting presentation, and it frankly isn't that uncommon. So I think we all have to be comfortable with understanding when there's red flags and approaching it with the appropriate level of concern. So basically, we have a 30-year-old woman. She's four to six weeks postpartum. She's having substernal chest discomfort. She had an exercise nuclear stress test. There were concerning ECG changes on it. Her labs are relatively unremarkable, but we add this other aspect of it, the fact that she has autoimmune disease history and she has an early MI history in her family. And then when we go to the exam, we find this diastolic decrescendo murmur at the left upper sternal border, because when you mention it, we're starting to think about aortic regurgitation. So we have a young woman, chest pain, postpartum with a possibly an aortic regurgitation murmur. And for me, my red flags are up. So Scott, we have this patient here and wondering, how would you approach it? What are the kind of the next steps that we should take? Yeah, I think I totally agree with your problem representation of the case. It's interesting because it, it gives us a good chance to think about people who come in with chest pain, which is a chief complaint that we see all the time, of course, but in a different context, because this is somebody whose pretest probability of having your typical atherosclerotic ACS is pretty low. And the way I really do almost any differential diagnosis, the, the first thing I think about is this person having an acute life-threatening medical event? And I, I think that just like you said, she has red flags that are certainly concerning. And when I think of issues with chest pain that could be potentially life-threatening, the big ones that I think about are acute coronary syndromes, aortic dissection, pulmonary embolus, tension pneumothorax, and esophageal rupture. And then there's also a kind of grab bag of other ones like tamponade or arrhythmias that don't classically present with chest pain, but should probably still stay on our list. And so clinical features that would make me particularly worried about one of those can't miss diagnoses would be somebody who is having chest pain chronically in the past and has had a change in their pattern, which it does not sound like it was the case for her. It sounds like this is her first presentation of chest pain. Somebody who's describing a ripping or tearing character, which would make me think more aortic diseases and people who are having pleuritic discomfort, and particularly HD instability, hemodynamic instability, and which we saw that her exam, other than the murmur, was fairly unremarkable. So I, I think of that list, probably what we would keep on there as a consideration is acute coronary syndromes and aortic pathology, particularly aortic dissection. Thinking more generally about people who come into the office complaining of chest pain, somewhere between a third and a half of them are going to have musculoskeletal etiologies. Uh, somewhere around a quarter will have GI disease. 
10% with stable angina and some more like 5% for pulmonary diseases and 2-3% for myocardial ischemia. And I think just given her her features of being peripartum and being so young, her risk factors for that ischemic, classic ischemic disease are fairly low. And so the next thing that I, I start thinking about after I've considered those life-threatening conditions is just to go organ system by organ system. So yeah, Scott, I think, you know, that's a really interesting way to go about it. But I'm wondering what specifically for her, the fact that she's postpartum, makes you think of other potentially life-threatening emergencies and whether other pathology weighs in in your decision-making here. Absolutely. So I, I think that her, the findings on her stress test and particularly the ST changes on the exercise stress and the fact that it provoked her chest pain, it clearly, it pushes us towards a cardiac diagnosis more so than uh, those other kind of non-cardiac causes of chest pain. And generally, I break up cardiac etiologies of chest pain into ischemic and non-ischemic etiologies. Non-ischemic being things like myocarditis or pericarditis or acute valvular disease. And ischemic, of course, being acute coronary syndromes or, or stable myocardial ischemia. For her, I don't know about you guys, but the very first thought that I had was a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And the reason for that was the fact that she's peripartum, postpartum, and that she has relatively few features suggestive of atherosclerotic disease in terms of a past history. But SCAD is a very concerning cause of acute myocardial infarction in people in her age group and with her demographic features. SCAD is when you get a, a separation of the coronary arterial wall that causes an acute MI because you have an intimal tear in the wall of the artery, and then it propagates that bleeding and tearing forming a false lumen that eventually encroaches on the true lumen, and that gives you ischemia and infarction. And I, I think the reason that popped into my head first is, is recognizing that 80 to 90% of people who get SCAD are women, and, and they're usually in this age group. People with SCAD are usually in their mid-40s to late 50s, and it's often women who are postpartum and often multiparous. In fact, your risk goes up with the more pregnancies that you've had. About a fifth of these people, you never really figure out why they had SCAD, but the majority, you do have provoking factors like some kind of connective tissue disease or the postpartum woman, for example. It's a fairly rare cause of acute coronary syndromes more generally, but when you're looking at women under 50 having an acute MI, it's about a quarter of those cases. So that was certainly my first thought. I don't know. It sounded like based on our earlier discussion that it occurred to you guys as well. Yeah, I certainly think that SCAD is amongst the top of my differentials. The fact that she described this discomfort also at night, I wonder if there's any provoking factor leading to coronary vasospasm, though the constant nature of it and frequently occurring regardless of the circumstances, especially with exercise, makes me point more towards SCAD. Dan or Ahmed, I don't know if you had any other thoughts before Manu describes the catheterization for us. Yeah, I think Scott beautifully highlights that this is probably going to be a cardiac issue, ultimately, considering the stress tests and the provocable anginal type of chest pain. But just thinking about the hypercoagulable state and the postpartum period and a recent hospitalization, and who knows how mobile she is. I don't know if she has a cesarean or not, but thinking about pulmonary embolism as well, at least in the initial outset before doing the stress test uh, would have been relevant also. With the stress test in mind, definitely excited to hear more about the next steps in risk stratification. Guys, that was exactly on point. And boy, am I excited to showcase the results of this heart catheterization. It was very stark when we first saw the images. She had significant, nearly 70 to 80% stenosis of the osteal left main. There was also even significant stenosis as well noted in the osteal RCA as well, around 70 to 80% or so. Those were just starking features that we saw from the outside hospital images. Wow, not what I would have guessed, but with a coronary osteal stenosis and an aortic regurgitation murmur, I'd wonder about syphilis serologies because I learned recently during our discussion with the UT Southwestern folks about the many manifestations of syphilis in the cardiovascular system, but aortic aneurysm with valvulitis and aortic regurgitation and coronary osteal stenosis is definitely something that I think about now as, as raising a flag for that. But I'm sure there are other causes that we may get, get into. I think that's an awesome point, uh, Amit, and I really did appreciate that episode from UT Southwestern on expanding how we think about aortic pathology and extending into the coronaries. But I, I think when I hear that this young woman had 70-80% stenosis at the osteal left main and RCA, I also begin to wonder, what do we do in the cath lab to approach these osteolesions? How do we know that this is not vasospasm? 
how do we make a diagnosis if this is SCAD? So maybe, Adam, you could lead us through a little bit of the discussion there. I would love to, Karin. I will preface this by saying that no one from the University of Maryland fellowship program on this pod is a, is an interventionist, but I'm sure Dr. Srivasta will talk about it after the cases report that we all are very heavy CAF fellows. The cases don't start until we get in the room. So we happen to dabble quite a bit. And I can speak for the rest of the fellows that we've learned a ton in our lab. Certainly with what has been discussed, I think the important thing to, to consider is in terms of a coronary pathology, is this vasospasm or is this SCAD or something else? When we approach vasospasm in the lab, historically, we come to the table quite humbled. We know that it's an often overlooked etiology and of cardiac-related chest pain, and it is not a benign pathology. On angiography, classically, what we see would describe angiography as showing focal vasoconstriction that often varies with location and has a variable degree of luminal stenosis. I think as was alluded to by Karan and, and others just recently, we know that it's a transient pathology. And so sometimes to diagnose it requires a bit of finagling, a bit of provocative testing. So you know, if you're really suspicious, what you can do really are administer intracoronary drugs that perturb vascular smooth muscle calcium signaling. So what we commonly use are two things, intracoronary acetylcholine or intracoronary ergonavine. And classically, what we would describe is a response of vasoconstriction in the coronaries that exceeds 90% stenosis, plus some evidence of that stenosis being consequential to myocardial blood flow. So you have some evidence of ischemia, whether it's pain, anginal pain that the patient tells you about, or EKG changes in the lab. We do more coronary infusions of these things than IV, although you can get away with IV ergonavine, but we know that the coronary infusion is gold standard. A couple of reasons to not use ergonavine if your patient's really hypertensive, you can elicit that response systemically. So, you know, we do that not too often, but if there's a high degree of suspicion, we like to do these provocative maneuvers. We can go into how to treat vasospasm. I think nitrates, calcium channel blockers, or any drugs that really lower vascular smooth muscle calcium really work for this condition. Theoretically, you can have beta blocker related vasoreactivity from antagonism of the beta 2 receptors. We avoid that on a theoretical basis. Moving on to SCAD, as I, I think everyone's ears are up for that, Scott put it perfectly that we see that the lumen is separated from the sort of backbone of the vessel, either with intimal disruption or hematoma that develops in the vessel. We know that in the lab, there's a couple different ways that it can look angiographically. A group out of British Columbia classically described how they look. And the classic appearance, what we call type 1 SCAD, shows dye hang up or dye blushing that really is able to showcase two different lumens, both a false and a true lumen with a classic dissection flap in between. Moving on to sort of type 2, what we describe as a sort of diffuse narrowing and tapering of the vessel. And that type is separated into two further subtypes, one looking with normal adjacent vessels, either proximal and distal to the disruption, or one that looks like it's terminating in a dissection, so not having normal coronaries adjacent to the vessel. Type 3 SCAD is noted by discrete tubular narrowing, and it looks a lot like your run-of-the-mill atherosclerosis usually diagnosed with intracoronary imaging like IVUS or OCT. I will say that treatment for SCAD is complex and is controversial. There's no really robust data by way of a randomized control trial that says one strategy is better than the other. If you tend to have a patient that does not have high-risk features, meaning proximal two-vessel disease or a left main disease, you tend to leave those alone and do conservative management. Whether or not PCI should be pursued really is dictated by is the patient having active ischemia or having hemodynamic compromise that we think is related to coronary insufficiency. We take pause at intervening, and I'm sure as Ahmed and Dan know better, because when you wire these things, you can actually make things worse. You can propagate the dissection and further limit coronary blood flows. Adam, fantastic summarization of these two very important clinical entities that can be very challenging to diagnose. Just a vasospasm, before I was doing a lot of cap, I would imagine that the entire 
coronary artery that you're dealing with is spasmed down. And so you would see like an entirely tight lumen throughout. But actually, that's sometimes not the case. Sometimes you actually just have focal areas that spasm for whatever reason. Maybe there's some existing plaque or whatever. And then you you see this a lot with catheters induced spasm. You see that there are certain areas that sometimes really clamp down and then other areas that open up. I had a crazy case when I was a first year fellow of a patient who was getting chemo and ended up having what we what we thought to have as chemo-induced vasospasm and came to the lab with ST elevation MI. We found these really tight, but looked like focal blockages. And we're actually loading up the EBU guide just to like go ahead and fix it and ended up giving nitro. And the spasm like really resolved with nitroglycerin. And it was like almost as if the lesions like went away. And then basically a couple shots later, it had come back. And a couple shots later, it went away. Like it was very dynamic. So Prince metal agina or vasospasm could be a real challenge to diagnose because A, it could be transient, and then B, the way it angiographically looks could be kind of subtle. SCAD, similarly, you mentioned these three types of SCAD, type 1, type 2, and type 3, and there's an amazing graphic that you can check out. It's We'll put the reference of this paper in the show notes, but that basically highlights these three different entities. Again, same type of thing. Before I was doing a lot of cath, I would have imagined that SCAD is a dissection. And so you would see this like lucency in the wall versus, you know, as the dye went down. And again, that would be type one, but actually, and so you sometimes do see it and it's a great visualization. You can appreciate that dissection flap, but sometimes type two, which is actually more common than type one and type three, which is just this like long diffuse area of disease. You have to really look at the proximal vessel, and you have to actually look at the distal vessels. But sometimes the dissections could run through the distal vessel. So for example, if you have a long dissection down a big LED with a bunch of diags, the dissection may involve the subsequent diags that come off of the LED. So your eye may not catch a lesion because when things are diffuse, your eye doesn't necessarily take in the whole picture at once. They're very easy to be missed. They're subtle. So having that on your differential going into a case is just critical. Whenever you have a young woman who comes in for cath lab and has a good coronary story and you don't see anything, you got to look really hard and close at the coronary angiogram. And sometimes that requires more imaging. Obviously, more imaging like IVIS or OCT, which are ways to interrogate the artery, has its own risks because in order to do them, you have to put a wire down the coronary. And as Adam pointed out, you're suspecting dissection and you're hesitant to put a wire down the coronary. So that really goes into the equation here. So really, ideally, you diagnose it without that extra imaging. Type 3 uh, SCAD, which Adam referenced, but just to bring back to this discussion, is a little bit easier and more um, appreciated to see. You know, you see a fat artery, a very tight lesion, a tubular classic lesion that you would expect that looks almost like an atherosclerotic lesion, and then it plumps up again. And again, that might be challenging to differentiate between an atheromatous plaque so it's a really, really interesting phenomena. And also a shout out to Dr. Sharon Hayes and colleagues, a very recent state-of-the-art review in Jack, August 2020 on SCAD, uh, highly recommended. And this is such a rich discussion on chest pain and troponin and coronary angiography and differential diagnosis that I just want to take this moment to recognize two very common cognitive falsehoods. And one is that the value of troponin is for acute coronary syndrome. And clearly, we all know that that's not true, but I think it's just important to talk about and recognize it because the troponin itself has such a broad differential diagnosis. All it does is it indicates myocardial injury, which may be ischemic or non-ischemic, and there's a beautiful differential on both ends of that spectrum. And I think uh, we're thinking about it even more now as troponin is being recognized as an important prognostic indicator in COVID illness. And the second falsehood is that coronary disease is atherosclerotic disease. And so we shouldn't think about it in young patients. And I think one, young people can get atherosclerotic disease with important risk factors like LP little a, strong family histories, hypercoagulable states. But there's a whole differential diagnosis for non-thrombotic, non-atherosclerotic coronary disease, like we're talking about here with vasospasm, SCAD, anomalous coronaries, myocardial bridge that may be significant and can be lead to sudden cardiac death with certain high-risk features. And so there's so much to discuss and talk about that this discussion is specific to this patient, but it really, the teaching is generally applicable to so much of what we see and take care of. Yeah, Dan and Ahmed and Adam, I think that was an extremely rich discussion and I'm going to apply it to my own practice. So maybe we can have uh, Manu take it from here because Manu, you are the captain of the ship taking care of this patient primarily when she was at our hospital. So basically, we have this patient leaving the cath lab with concern and demonstration of left main disease, RCA disease. We have an exam that tells us that there's suggestion of an AR murmur, but we don't have a clear reason why this all happened. What were you thinking? What were the next steps you took? 
Thanks, Karen. Yeah, no, this was a great discussion that we just had discussing one, the aspects of chest pain dissection and SCAD. But the other important thing that I kind of want to bring out with all of this was, you know, we talked about her prior nuclear spec stress test and how they, essentially the test was otherwise negative. And this brings out an idea that we have severe left main and severe osteal RCA disease. And the idea that there may be some element of balanced ischemia that wasn't really showcased by the results initially of that stress test. And that's something that's very important to realize. And that's what sparked our interest and curiosity further as to what may be going on. As she came back out of the cath lab and came to us here at the University of Maryland, one of the things that still was highest on my team's, myself's differential was vasospasm in and of itself. And so we decided to continue her on IV nitroglycerin infusion to see if with resolution followed by CT coronary angiography, if there was any resolution to the osteal disease notable. It's very important to realize she's a postpartum female. Catheterization is not a simple benign tool that should be used back and forth without further thought process. And so we decided to pursue CT coronary angiography thereafter, looking to see if there was any resolution of the osteostenosis with IV nitroglycerin after a few days. So the results from that CD coronary angiography were a little surprising to us. Number one, the RCA osteostenosis almost completely resolved, was not present. And number two, her left main osteostenosis was still present, but there was also this peri-inflammatory fat stranding around the osteum of the left main. And that piqued our curiosity even further because this was something that we didn't expect if this were to be simply a pure ischemic in etiology. And coupled with all of that, as part of the workup, she, because of the murmur that we appreciate, we appreciated both on our exam as well as appreciated in the outside, there was notable mild to moderate aortic regurgitation, which was, you know, a very important finding to one realize and to think about because this is obviously something pathologic and not necessarily purely physiologic at this time. Thinking about the causes of ischemia, this woman's got a double hit, right? Because as we like to think about back to our basics of physiology, the coronary driving pressure is your diastolic blood pressure minus your LVEDP because the predominant phase of coronary filling is during the diastolic phase. So not only does she have the coronary stenosis increasing your resistance and decreasing your coronary perfusion, she also has a reason for having elevated LVEDP with aortic regurgitation, which is going to decrease your drive. So you have increased resistance, decreased pressure drive, it's going to decrease your coronary flow. There's this beautiful case report that our program director, Dr. Mena, was showing us, a patient that reported who essentially had all the features of primary coronary ischemia. The stress test had reversible LED territory ischemia, but the coronary angiography was completely negative. But the only structural problem was severe aortic regurgitation. And so they took the patient for AVR, and after fixing the aortic regurgitation, the LVEDP issue, the reversible ischemia essentially resolved. And so it's just such a beautiful example about how causes of elevated LVEDP, in this case, perhaps the aortic regurgitation, can cause an ischemic syndrome in addition to coronary disease. Ahmed, that was a really good point that you made. And so if we just, again, as I learned from Dan and Ahmed when they were my senior residents and Reza Manesh and multiple other fantastic diagnosticians, whenever something's not making sense, always to go back to the history and try to piece things together. So what we're piecing together here is that we have a young woman postpartum that has now demonstrated left main and RCA disease, but on treatment with nitroglycerin, the RCA disease has relieved she has aortic regurgitation, and we're seeing this inflammatory process on our coronary CTA. That immediately makes me think of some time a systemic inflammatory process. And so the team here, and it seems like Manu and the residents that he was leading, he'll describe this here more in a moment, but it's really important to nail down what this systemic inflammatory process is, including more history, more imaging, and serologic workups. So maybe Manu, you can talk about what happened next from that standpoint. You know, so with all of that in mind, one of the most important things that kind of came out of my mind, as well as some of the intelligent, very great residents that we have here at the University of Maryland, was that maybe there was some systemic process that's going on that we're just not realizing. And then maybe there's more than the eye beholds. And sure enough, we kind of went back and talked to her further, inquired, is there some sort of systemic inflammatory process that's going on? Does she have any physical exam findings concerning for rash, joint swelling? some sort of alopecia, history of Raynaud's. And so those are some of the things that we asked her, and none of that really came back positive. And so we decided to go forward more of an immunologic workup as well as more of a further imaging workup as well. In terms of some of the serologic workup, things that kind of came back positive, which is really striking to us, was a positive P-ANCA. 
with a titer of 1 to 160, in particular, a positive NPO antibody at about 65. And that was something that definitely piqued our curiosity. This is a really interesting case, and it really throws a twist at us. You know, we definitely had all these trigger words up as we talked about the differential earlier, tying this into pregnancy and thinking about SCAD and vasospasm, and we really covered a lot. But now we have this wrench where we have this inflammatory situation going on, and now reapplying that to our patient is just so incredibly important and also almost humbling like this may not have been on our differential earlier on. Yeah, so it sounds like at this point, we're at this juncture of essentially being very close to diagnosing a medium vessel vasculitis, which is PIANCA associated. And just stepping back, you know, we think about the broad categories of vasculitides is categorizing them as a target vessel is a useful categorization is a large vessel, medium vessel, or small vessel vasculitis. And then also the etiology, right? So is it a primary vasculitic process? Is it a vasculitis that's within the context of a broader systemic connective tissue disease, like a rheumatoid associated vasculitis or lupus associated vasculitis? Or is it a an inflammatory response to a trigger? And that trigger can be an infection, like the case of syphilitic vasculitis. It can be in a trigger to malignancy, lymphoma-associated leukocytoclastic vasculitis, and or it could be in response to a medication. And one thing that I do wonder here is, was she hypertensive in pregnancy and she got hydralazine vasculitis associated with PIANCA and other serologies? And so there's so many ways of thinking about why she has PIANCA vasculitis. I'd love to hear how you guys went about this in the next few steps. So yeah, you know, you know, taking a constellation of symptoms and laboratory findings and imaging that we've had, you know, we have a postpartum lady with osteocoronary disease, signs of inflammation in and around the osteum, as mentioned, as well as a positive pianca titer. This kind of makes us very well us concerned that we're looking at some sort of coronary vasculitis with possible systemic involvement, which is why we then pursued further imaging workup, including MRA of the head and neck to look at evidence of other medium to large vessel involvement, including vessels like the carotids, as well as the subclavian as well. We also did a broad spectrum PET CT to see if there's any sort of other signs of inflammation in around the other organ systems as well, which ended up being negative to date aside from the inflammation kind of seen around the left main ostea. With all of that in mind, the decision had to do as to what we would do for her. Obviously, she's in a very precarious position. And given the overwhelming evidence that some sort of vasculitis process, specifically possibly microscopic polyangiitis, given the positive Pianca and PO titer that we saw, we empirically started her on pulse dose steroids for a few days. We got our wonderful rheumatology colleagues on board who've also helped us with this decision-making process and overall made a recommendation to image five to seven days after steroid therapy to see if there's any significant improvement. In addition, given how precarious her condition was and the involvement of dual ostea, essentially, of the RCA and left main system, the decision uh, not benignly made was to also start cyclophosphamide, given how high risk she was. And with repeat CT coronary imaging, there was notable decrease of the left main stenosis to about 50% or so. However, what was previously seen on the first CT coronary, which was no significant involvement of RCA lesion, now showed about 15 to 20% stenosis of the osteal RCA, which was once again, really very obviously concerning to us. You know, beyond the immunosuppression, this is a difficult situation from the management perspective, right? Because surgeons hate, for all the right reasons, going in and operating on inflamed tissue because the inflamed tissue is friable and more likely to hiss and not heal well. And so in this patient who has moderate to severe eric regurgitation and severe osteal disease affecting the coronary ostea, affecting the left main of the RCA, the next steps generally would be surgery. When do we take her for bypass? Is this the right time? Do we fix the inflammation first and manage her medically between now and then? How do we get her there? I think these are all important management decision points that I haven't come across personally. Yeah, I mean, I tend to wholeheartedly agree with you. And I remember talking to Manu about this patient when he was taking care of her. And that was the difficult question for everybody on the team. And I think Scott and Adam, we generally try to learn from each other's cases and patients and it's a really difficult choice. Do you operate now? Do you try to reduce the inflammation? So Manu, maybe you can tell us what happened next and ultimately the course for the patient. Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, we were not really given a choice in the setting that she unfortunately suffered a VT V-fib arrest day eight into the hospital stay. And at that point, we were able to bring her back. And she then later on in the course of the day arrested again, PA arrest. And at that time, the decision was made to go ahead and cannulate for ECMO, given how volatile her condition was. And right after cannulation, she went for emergent coronary artery bypass, where they pursued a Lima to LAD and a venous graft to the first obtuse marginal. Oh, oh my gosh. What a high stakes 
situation. We've got a young, otherwise healthy woman with a two-month-old baby at home going through just these incredible points in her life. I'm just so glad you guys were there to take care of her in a way that was so multidisciplinary and collaborative with rheumatology and surgery and intervention and critical care. This is a, a triumph of teamwork. Yeah. And I, again, just to reiterate, before this arrest, the decision fork in the road was really challenging and complicated. Atherosclerotic disease is something you can look at. It doesn't really go away. And so if you have tight left main, your treatment options are what they are. But when you have these dynamic changes, you know, where your left main is getting better with immunosuppression, but now your RCA lesion is getting worse. And it's just so hard to know what to do next. And obviously, this patient probably is not somebody who had been preconditioned with a long-standing atherosclerotic. These were new lesions popping up. And so she was probably at a higher risk for having a VFRS from these osteo lesions and really challenging. And I'm just so grateful for you and the multi-D team with the cardiac surgery to valiantly offer this patient basically full court press in terms of resuscitation. She's young and probably a great candidate for ECMO. And so I'm really excited to hear what happened next. Exactly. This was a very tough decision, a lot of high stakes involved, and we are very grateful for the multidisciplinary team that we have here at the University of Maryland. She was on high flow of ECMO at the time of surgery, and so while they were operating on her, there was also the tough decision to look at the aortic valve to see if that really needed to be fixed at the time. It's important to comment that this is high flow ECMO, so that could influence the severity of aortic regurgitation really seen. And at the time when they did transesophageal echo intraoperatively, they noticed that the AI or AR was very mild in nature. So the decision was made not to fix the valve at the time. Her clinical course postoperative was slightly prolonged. She was otherwise finally able to be weaned from ECMO, but did suffer some complications, including a provoked DVT, but otherwise slowly recovered. She was otherwise continued on steroids and cytoxan. With a repeat CTA done post-discharge, she was successfully discharged, essentially home with support from cardiac rehab. And the repeat coronary CT actually showed very minimal, if at all, any left main stenosis, no significant fat stranding, and patent grafts as before. And that was very exciting to hear for her and her family altogether. Perhaps the left main stenosis was reversible, essentially, with the immunosuppression. That was really exciting to hear. And thankfully, she healed her stenotomy despite cytoxin and hydrosteroids. Yeah, that's for sure. This is really interesting. We learn about what pregnancy does to systemic illnesses. And we think about asthma and systemic autoimmune illnesses. And there's a group where the autoimmune illnesses get better because pregnancy is uh, sort of an immunosuppressed state. And there's a group where it doesn't change. And there's a group where autoimmune illnesses get worse. And so it's just an interesting dynamic with pregnancy, but a phenomenal outcome. And just another point is with the resolution or improvement of the left main stenosis, obviously, it's a matter of curiosity how to do what you had to do. But I'm curious to see what would happen with the graft patency as flow is restored down the native coronary arteries. So how did you guys all put this together? What was the final diagnosis for this particular patient? Yeah, so we finally came upon the diagnosis of isolated coronary vasculitis with microscopic polyangiitis being the final diagnosis for her. Wow, that's really incredible. And again, something that was off my differential. Again, another case really highlighting the multidisciplinary team that cardiology employs within the division of cardiology, but also within really the whole university at large. And so this is a great opportunity for us to ask you guys, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology? And specifically, what makes your heart flutter about training at the University of Maryland? I think this case is a great illustration of the kind of fascinating things we get to see at University of Maryland. The patients that we take care of in our CCU are by far the sickest that I've taken care of in my training. And it's just, it provides a wealth of opportunities in terms of training and getting to really see some fascinating diseases. And just like you said, this was not in my differential, but it's something that I'm so, just so grateful that I got to see in my training. And it'll certainly be something I think about in the future when we have similar patients. Completely agree, Scott. I think training in cardiology and, and at the University of Maryland in particular for it is so worthwhile and enjoyable because we can actually do things that really make a difference in improving patients' quality of life. And in this case, we let this 30-year-old woman spend time with her loved ones, her newborn baby. That's everything. That's enough to make your heart flutter for years. And I'll agree with Adam and Scott on everything they said. One of the Biggest points of why I enjoy training at the University of Maryland is the fact that I'm training with friends, and that's not only my fellows, but it's our co-attendings. It is a really collaborative environment. I love training there. I love thinking through these tough cases together. I like being pushed to the limits. And when we're doing all that in that intense environment, we're doing it with people we enjoy being around. 
And that's my favorite part of training here. And as Adam would say frequently, his heart is always fluttering when he's working with me. So my my goes back to him oh. as well. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> my friends, you know, I, I just my experience of University of Maryland cardiology training and the care you deliver is through Curran's eyes. I love hearing from Curran intermittently here and there about the cases he's struggling with and the cases he's enjoying taking care of and getting patients through transplant and ECMO and through rare things like Dannon's disease and, you know, all sorts of shock. And it's just, I, I really enjoyed hearing from Curran and now hearing from all of you. This is a tremendous experience. Thank you for walking us through an incredible case with a phenomenal outcome and really adding to my differential diagnosis. So I applaud you all for the care you deliver and the teaching you do. And thank you for spending your Sundays with us. Welcome to the CardioNerds family. Thank you, Amit. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Amit. now for our ECPR and a message from our program director, actually the same person, Dr. Mukta Shravasta, interventional cardiologist, star program director, and just a phenomenal friend to us all. Here she is. Thank you, Karin, for this warm welcome. I certainly cherish my friendships with all of you. Thank you also to the entire cast of CardioNerds. I am inspired by your mission and wonderful execution. You have been such beacons of collegiality and innovation and have done so much to promote and bring together training programs across the nation with this platform. Hello, everyone. My name is Mukta Srivastav. I am an interventional cardiologist at the University of Maryland with an interest in left atrial appendage closure devices, intravascular imaging, and mechanical support for the management of shock. My honor and passion is my role as the director of the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship for the wonderful fellows at the University of Maryland. Today's case which was so nicely outlined and expertly discussed by Karan, Manu, Adam, Scott, Dan, and Amit, was a rare presentation with an even more rare pathology. To summarize, our patient was a postpartum woman with a one-and-a-half-month-old infant at home, a history of Hashimoto's and Lyme's disease with an uncomplicated pregnancy, who presented with angina and remarkably was found to have severe narrowing of the ostium of her right coronary artery as well as the ostium of her left main coronary artery. An additional important and specific feature of her presentation was the presence of mild to moderate aortic regurgitation. As workup for etiologies of her unexpected coronary disease and management strategies were being discussed, she went on to have a cardiac arrest and was initiated on ECMO. Multidisciplinary discussions led to a diagnosis of microscopic polyangitis involving her aortic root and coronary ostia. She improved with treatment for MPA, including high-dose steroid cyclophosphamide, and underwent revascularization with coronary bypass grafting, and ultimately was discharged home. While early in this case, the diagnosis of CAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, and even iatrogenic spasm was reasonably entertained, the principle of Occam's razor that the simplest and most unifying explanation for any given problem is the one most likely to be correct prevailed. There was nothing simple about this case, but vasculitis did provide a unifying diagnosis explaining her coronary lesions as well as her aortic regurgitation. Well demonstrated in this case was the utility of multimodal imaging in coronary vasculitis. Cardiac catheterization was very useful in demonstrating the anatomical lesion. FDG-PET excluded extracardiac involvement of vasculitic lesions in larger vessels and supported a metabolically active inflammatory milieu surrounding the coronary lesions. During the initial catheterization, intravascular imaging with OCT or optic coherence tomography, which is an imaging modality using the reflection of infrared light to create high-resolution cross-sectional images of the coronaries could have characterized the nature of this patient's coronary lesions. Specifically, OCT could have excluded thrombus, vasospasm, dissection, or classic atherogenic processes and demonstrated a homogeneous fibroproliferative plaque. This would have been supportive but not conclusive for an inflammatory process. However, interventionalists are generally terrified by the thought of bringing any peripartum patient to the cardiac cath lab, much less placing a wire and catheter down their coronaries without a clear impact on management. 
CTA served as a safer complementary modality, providing corroborating evidence of inflammation and fat stranding pericordiary ostea of the left main, as well as a modality that could be used for non-invasive serial tracking in this patient. Finally, a highlight of this case to me was the multidisciplinary involvement and interactions that guided this patient's diagnosis and therapy. Our colleagues in rheumatology, cardiac surgery, infectious disease, and endocrine all had important input in managing this primary cardiac patient. Another reason why cardiology is such an amazing specialty. Amit, Dan, Manus, Karan, and Adam, thank you again for the awesome discussion. Let me turn now to speak to the training program at UMD, one that is near and dear to my heart and one that I am proud to call myself a graduate of. After training at the University of Maryland for general cardiovascular disease and interventional cardiology, I joined faculty, so I have seen this program through a few different vantage points. At each stage, I felt I had the opportunities and the relationships to grow and succeed here. Key features of our program include a tremendous spectrum of disease with a wide range of acuity that draws from a diverse demographic makeup, including the urban West Baltimore community we are based in, a veteran population we are privileged to serve, and a statewide referral base. We provide individualized mentorship, guiding you to craft a training program tailored to your interests and career aspirations. We hope you can leverage clinical opportunities here with diverse research opportunities that prepare you to thrive in any practice setting. Certainly not least, wellness is an important mission of our program leadership. We recognize that fellowship is an amazing time for professional growth and development, but also a time when many important life events such as marriages and the birth of children happen, and we celebrate and support fellows through this work-life balance. We are based in Baltimore, which is actually called Maryland's Charm City, and as the fellows spoke to, is a vibrant place made up of unique neighborhoods, a veritable culture and arts presence, a delectable foodie scene, and accessible waterfront living, as well as convenient access to other major East Coast cities. We invite you to explore our program, and we wish you all the very best. Again, thank you for your wonderful work, Cardio Nerds. Is there a Are dog you, in the background? Yeah, right there is like, a, do you mind muting? clock. I'll turn that off real quick. I have a clock. That's your clock? <laughs> Let me turn that off real quick. Uh, you won't, it's not going to That's the blooper, guys. That's the blooper right there. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait, I thought Scott had the dog, but no, we, we love dogs. That's this great. Clock, yeah. But this is a clock. 